how would we create it for ourselves? Not, not how would we create it to make a bunch of money? How would you make it to make, make a great business? And, and part of the reason why was when I was with the brokerage firm world, I realized that the question they were always asking is how can we get more lifetime value out of the customer or the client? How can we sell more stuff? How can we make more revenue? Which is the question that you want publicly traded companies to ask for their shareholders. But we said, let's just flip that around. Let's just say, how would we build it for ourselves as entrepreneurs? Let's just start there. You are listening to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Harris. And when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the founder of an award-winning real estate investment firm and actively investing in commercial real estate all over the country. This show allows me to interview, dive deeper, and deconstruct many passive wealth principles, not just from investing, but tactics, strategies, and many fascinating ways in which people have achieved levels of passive wealth. Through my nearly 20-year career as a professional investor, I've built an amazing network of people and come across some super savvy investors. Not only do they have a unique stance on the marketplace, but look at the same problems we all face and many times have come up with a simple but unconventional approach to solving them. This is why I'm so excited for this podcast. It allows me to unpack and have a more in-depth conversations with these special guests. Selfishly, It's a platform where I get to ask the questions that would never come up in a normal conversation, and I get a chance to learn and dissect their best strategies, and you get to be a part of that process as well. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversations, and these amazing Passive Wealth Principle lessons. Welcome to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. My name is Jake Harris, the host of the show. I have a, a, a very intriguing guest, and, and actually, he's a, a new friend, someone that I've recently met just a few weeks ago. He had some very, very in, insightful information. His name is Jim Dew. Jim uh, is really a pioneer and, and truly a, a genius on, on the way that he has structured and set up his business. And, and I, I attribute that to him just doing what was right. And the way that he designed his systems was the way that he would want them designed as, as an entrepreneur. So Jim does, has an advisory business that does a virtual family office for entrepreneurs that are owner operators running their business that are making more than a million dollars in EBITDA or profit a year. And then he helps them create systems that understand all the different mechanisms of the attorneys and the CPAs and the the insurance and the investments and collectively kind of brings them all together as, as a whole. What an amazing and fascinating journey that he led there from being a math teacher and a physics teacher and, and you know, a coach and, and uh, as an educator, a teacher, and then all of a sudden pivots into the place of being a financial advisor to some of the most successful entrepreneurs in the world. And then how he is just revolutionizing this virtual family office space that many people probably even don't even know exists. So I'm very, very excited for this. I have pages and pages of notes from this interview. So let's jump in to the interview at Passive Wealth Principles with Jim Dew. (music) 
Jim Dew, I am uh, excited to have you on the show. And, and actually, I, I'm probably more excited than some of the other guests because I know I've known personally a lot of the other guests. We've had friends, we've broken bread, traveled the world, done some other things like that. You are a new recent uh, kind of a person that I've met, acquaintance. It's, it's only been maybe a month or so ago or a few weeks ago that we met in San Francisco and you just had like tremendous insight. And I was just like, I need to know Jim more, you know, as far as get to know you. And, and obviously I have the podcast here. So uh, I get to hear a little bit more of your story and I don't know anything about it. That's great, Jake. I appreciate that. And I plan not to disappoint. How's that? Well, you know, it'll probably just disappoint my mom, you know, because I think that, you know, maybe that's uh, we have more listeners than just my mom. So uh, I'd love to take a moment just to kind of dive in, like, let's, you know, from where you got started, you know, and then obviously we can bring that up to your career and what you're doing today and what the, the super fascinating uh, work. Where were you born? You know, what's your story and kind of, you know, spend, spend a little bit of time diving into that so people get a little context of who you are. Yeah. Happy to do it. Uh, my parents, uh, they're part of the story. I, I lost both my parents in the last couple of years. They were in their 90s. But my mom and dad grew up very poor in Ohio. And my dad enlisted in World War II when he was 17, ended up in a combat zone in the South Pacific. And I know you were in the Army, so I appreciate your service. So my dad was one of those greatest generation people. He came back, went to school on the GI Bill. My mom worked to put him through medical school. He became a pediatrician and found of all places, Tucson, Arizona. So my parents moved to Tucson, Arizona in 1955, where my dad started his medical practice, was one of the greatest doctors. I know I'm biased, but one of the greatest doctors, I think, ever, especially caring for kids. He was instrumental in getting the medical school started in Tucson and was just really cared for his patients in, in a way that I try to emulate with my clients. Although the reason I went to, didn't go into medicine is because my dad worked all the time. But my parents were very, very frugal. And I remember when my dad passed away a year ago, he was 95. I was thinking to myself, he never once splurged on himself, not for a watch, not for a pair of shoes, not for a special suit, not for first class upgrades. My dad never splurged ever. I never saw him buy anything that wasn't very frugal. And growing up in a family like that, I was the youngest of three boys. I wanted to make my dad proud like most young men. And so I tried to be more frugal than my dad, which was pretty much impossible. But I would do things that were really unusual, like I wouldn't let my parents buy me new shoes. So they'd have holes in the sides. My socks would be sticking out. Probably the kids at school thought I was poor, but it would make my mom very angry. And my mom would say two things to me. She would say, first of all, you're not poor. Your father and I were poor, but you're not poor. And the second thing is, it's not a good thing to be poor. It's nothing to be proud of. And that kind of was my first lesson about money is my parents talking like that. So I go to college. I played one year of D Division Three hoops. That's just a little side note. <laughs> Followed my basketball dream over to L.A. and played uh, one year of D3. Transferred back to University of Arizona when I got injured. And I was good at math and science. So I had a counselor ask me what I wanted to do after college. And I said, well, one thing is I don't care about money. I don't care if I ever make any money. Money doesn't matter to me. And the the counselor said, well, if you're good at math and science, you don't care about money, you should be a teacher. So I became a public school math teacher, uh, chased my wife now of 30 years. Mimi and I just celebrated our 30th anniversary, which is really hard to believe. Uh, but I chased her up to the Phoenix area. She had a job and she was transferring to ASU. Uh, and I moved up here and got a job teaching. So I was a high school math and physics teacher, did that for five years, coached boys and girls basketball at a little school near Phoenix. 
And after five years, I realized something really interesting. I love the kids, but I hated the system. I just felt like public education. I still feel that way today. There's a lot of problems. And so I just wasn't working in that. It didn't feel good to be in that system. So I looked for another way where I could make a difference that involved numbers. And I fell in love with financial services. So I started doing that. And about four years later, I, I realized that's a broken system too. And I still feel like today advice is being dispensed and driven through brokerage firms, broker dealers, insurance companies, and banks. So in 1999, very famous story, I had this huge argument with a manager of mine because they were trying to push some product down the retail channel that I didn't think was appropriate. And I came home and I complained to my wife, Mimi, for about 20 minutes. And I mean, complained like F-bombs and stuff like that about how the system was broken. And when I finished, you have to understand my wife, her family immigrated from Korea when she was five years old and she was the oldest and actually was running the company, the family's company when she was like eight years old doing the books and everything, which is what immigrants do, right? They put their oldest kid who speaks the best English, writes the best English to work. And the reason why I tell you that aside is because when I complained for 20 minutes and I finished, Mimi shrugged her shoulders and said, you need to start your own company. I said, wait, you're not listening. I said, banks, insurance companies, brokerage firms. And she said, I didn't say I knew how to do it, but that's your answer. So I was like, okay, uh, let me figure out how to do it. So we started our company in 1999 as a fiduciary firm serving our clients. And I realized I had this kind of interesting thing because no one in my family ever was an entrepreneur. No one either, either side. On my mom's family, they were farmers on, in Ohio. On my dad's side, they were steel mill workers in Martins Ferry, Ohio. No entrepreneurs anywhere to be found. But I realized the reason why I don't work well in broken systems is because I'm an entrepreneur. And you know, as an entrepreneur, when you see things, you just think, I can do that better. I would do that different. And you're constantly re-rigging things in your mind. It's a disease I have that my wife gets mad at. Because if we go to a restaurant, it's, I could tell them how to run this restaurant better. And she says, they don't care. Shut up. You know, this, <laughs> this is a fast food joint. Be quiet. Uh, at, at any rate. So, so really, that was the epiphany that I'm an entrepreneur. So we decided, let's work with people like us. So we decided to specialize and work with entrepreneurs. And then through that journey, that was a big decision. I learned along the way about what billionaires do with their money. And what they do is they create a family office. And as your listeners probably know, a family office is where a billionaire will hire all the needed tax, legal, insurance, and investment professionals, all the attorneys and accountants as full-time employees working for that one billionaire and his or her family. And when I learned about it, I thought, boy, I'd love to learn more about this. So I started asking around and I've always had a pretty good network of people. And I got introduced to the grandson of a billionaire in New York. And he and I were about the same age at the time and got to know each other, hit it off. And he said, look, you seem really interested. I can get you a meeting with our CEO if you're willing to fly back to New York, but you're not going to meet my grandfather. And you don't want to meet him anyway. He's he doesn't know anything about this stuff anyway. He created the billions of dollars and he's not really involved. And so I said, okay. So I flew out there, had breakfast with the CEO and two and a half hours later, even though he was 30 years older than me at the time, we just really connected. He said, gosh, Jim, if you want to stay around, change your flight, I'll show you everything we do and how we do it. So it was this huge learning opportunity. Of course, I changed my flight and I had all these notes and on the plane ride back home, it hit me like a lightning bolt. I thought, you know what? That's not just the best structure for a billionaire. That's the structure for any entrepreneur, best structure for any entrepreneur. But there's just one problem. You need about $400 million of net worth before you can afford to build and run one because they're very expensive to build and run, but they're worth it. That's why Oprah Winfrey has one, Sarah Blakely, Bill Gates, Bezos, they all have family offices. 
So then I thought, well, this is a crazy idea, but what if we could create a similar structure at a fraction of the cost to create the same kind of benefits, but make it affordable to entrepreneurs like us who are you know, taking home, let's say more than a million dollars of personal income. That's usually where our clients start. Uh, could we build something like that that would be affordable? And so that's what we set out to do. First, we did it for our own family, which was great because I made a lot of mistakes and you know, family is more forgiving uh, when <laughs> you're making mistakes with your family. I wouldn't suggest it uh, for a long period of time. Uh, and then we just kept getting better and better and better at that. And then I learned actually how to, to talk about it and how to market it. And now we have, I think we're 22 employees. Most of our employees are all, all advisors interfacing with our clients. And we have a waiting list that stretches today to, we're about six or seven month waiting list. I'd have to check where we are today uh, because there's more demand than we have supply. And it's really hard to do what we do. I mean, when I bit that off and thought, oh, this is a great idea. We'll just create these virtual family offices at a fraction of the cost. Then it took years and years and years to figure out how to execute and deliver on those promises. The promise is one thing, the delivery is another. And luckily we figured out how to deliver before I found out that once we were delivering, I had entrepreneurs, our clients telling us, gosh, Jim, you should be growing faster. Why don't more people know about this? And in fact, a friend of mine, Cameron Harold, uh, who, who became a client at also, he told me, and this was a big changing point for me. He said, Jim, you're so crappy at explaining what you do. I had to hire you guys. And then a year later, I was like, man, this is amazing. Uh, so then I, I spent some time in the last five or six years getting better at actually educating entrepreneurs on what we do. So that's the story. Uh, my wife and I, as I said, married for three decades, the most amazing woman, human being. Uh, I mean, I'm super grateful for having her in my life. And if if you ask me what I'm most proud of, it would be my marriage. Of, of everything in my life, I'm most proud of my marriage. There's kind of a, I kind of didn't take a breath, but there's kind of a history of Jim do that. That is an amazing story. I really, really love that. Uh, there's actually a few things that I'd like to ask you. How did you meet your wife? Blind date. So when we were at university of Arizona, when I met her, she had a falling out with her father, because as you can imagine, a Korean father from the old country, very, very demanding. And she was a very, my wife's a very strong personality. And so she, in essence, disowned her dad in a way. And, and they reconciled and I became very close with her father uh, as the years went on. But when I met her, she was working three jobs and putting herself through college. And my college roommate worked at the same restaurant she worked. He was a, in those days, they called them waiters, but he was a server and she was a cocktail waitress. And he connected us on a blind date. And I was student teaching at the time, but finishing up my degree at U of A and dated for three years. And we've been married for 30. So that's how I met her. So did you uh, pursue her? Or, you know, like, what was that? You, this blind date and you're just like, man, love at first sight? Or was it, you know, uh, a getting to know process and then who pursued who? I'm not sure how I feel about love at first sight, but I was definitely lust at first sight. I just was very enamored with her. I felt she was beautiful and smart and funny and interesting. And it was in college, I had gone through this phase where I had met attractive women that weren't very interesting and interesting women that weren't very attractive to me. I mean, everyone's attractive in their own way. I don't want to get in trouble for saying that. But uh, I, I thought, you know what, if I had to pick, I'd pick the more interesting, intelligent woman. And then here I met her and I thought, wow, this is everything to me. So I was very excited. She was, I would say, interested, but she had a lot of opportunities at the time. There were a lot of 
guys that were trying to date her. And I always joke around that. Have you ever watched many of the Seinfeld episodes? So there's the one where George does everything the opposite of what he thinks he should do. And then everything starts turning out great. And so I always say that I was like the George Costanza because I did everything the opposite of all the other guys that dated her. So I didn't care how I dressed. I didn't have any money, but I also didn't care how I dressed. I'd wear ratty sweatpants and stuff like that. I didn't care how my hair was cut. I used to go down to the barber shop and get a flat top when flat tops were not in. It was not a cool time for flat tops, but it was the guy, Marv, who was like, you know, 60 years old. He's like, flat tops are cool. I go, how much is that? Two bucks. Okay. I'll do the flat top. So, and then we would talk about deep, meaningful stuff. Like, you know, I was a, a kind of an old soul in college, had a lot of friends and we would talk about, you know, personal development books and things that were probably deeper than most kids in college. And so she found herself and she'd probably tell you the same thing. I would think that oh, this guy's really interesting. We have these deep conversations about really meaningful stuff, not what I'm used to with guys trying to date me in college. So I think it was a gradual thing. Uh, you know, when I asked her to marry me, it was not, I was actually talking to one of our advisors today. And I said, when you asked your wife to marry you, how sure were you what she, that she was going to say yes? And he said, hundred percent. I said, most guys are. And I was probably 55%, 60%. And it was not an easy, it was not an easy. Yes. It was a, it was a very, very uncomfortable. Yes. You know? And so, uh, so I, I guess in answer to your question is it took more time for her with me and I wasn't a love at first sight person, but I was definitely thinking, man, this is, this is right. Exactly. The kind of woman I'm looking to date. And then as we got to know each other more and some of the more in-depth things about her life and her upbringing and her challenges just made me uh, admire and respect her even more. And so that was part of the attraction. She's gorgeous. She's still beautiful today. And I'm still very much enamored with her, but her inner strength and the qualities of, of what I respect most about her and, and other human beings, she has that. So that's a really cool thing. And now we have this long history. There's almost nothing we haven't experienced together, which was nice. I always feel bad for people who grow up in families who have money because I didn't know there was a such thing as a four seasons. I thought the holiday Inn was the nicest hotel because my parents would splurge and go from the motel six to the holiday Inn once in a while. Uh, I, so I never had those experiences, which was great. And neither did she, she didn't grow up with money either. And so the first time we got to stay at a four seasons was like, Oh my gosh, first time we flew first class or any of those types of moments sharing those together were, were really powerful. It's one of the things that I picked up about you was your relationship. You're the wife. And, and, and obviously I, I can feel it when I was with you. I can, I, I can feel it now. You can feel the love that you have. You have the, and it's like just below that sort of like the emotion kind of thing to it is like, uh, I feel the same way. Like my wife is my axis in which the world spins off of. And I was like, and, and maybe we'll even, you know, use your analogy of the hub, like the hub of everything that my world is, is, is and I say the axis, but is my wife. If things are good with my wife, any given time, there's going to be something going wrong in one of our projects. You know, I can deal with it pretty easily. If things are not going well with my wife, you know, it's like everything seems to be worse. And it doesn't matter if everything's doing awesome. If things are not good with my wife, it, it, it you know, seems life is, is much more difficult. Uh, same thing with you. I was, you know, like... 60% sure that she was going to say yes. Um, uh, and so I actually had to do that. 
I kind of put her on the spot. So like I did it at a, like a really nice bougie restaurant. Uh, we went to Jean. No, we were, um, not Jean George. It was Thomas Keller's uh, restaurant in, in New York drawing a blank on right now or per se. Uh, and so it was like at the thing and, you know, I get down and they have waiters and all these people. And I'm like proposing to her. She was super shocked. Uh, it actually happened to be our anniversary as well. You know, our anniversary or some starting the date. And so I kind of marked that moment. And I, I started bawling. Like I, I'm a, a, a emotional when it comes to to those things like that so she said yes we did get married we do have kids you know we're still together so uh, i feel that from you and and i really uh, respect that about you is that it is such a a key foundational uh component of who you are so i'd like to dive into a little bit of like you know let's talk a little bit about this virtual family office because i i, I think the the insights of thinking like a billionaire prepares you to start moving towards the direction of being a billionaire. So can you explain to me, because to be honest with you, up to about, I don't know, about seven years ago, I didn't know what a family office was. You know, it was just, it, it, it was a rich guy. I worked for a rich guy that, you know, had, had hundreds of millions of dollars and, you know, it was just like, I don't know, rich guy. And then it was like, and then it was like a family office. Then I started going to family office events. And then I was just like, oh, this is the thing. I didn't even know it was a thing. So maybe explain a family office a little bit and then take and say, like, what is it that you guys are doing from a virtual family office? Absolutely. So my definition of family office is where a billionaire will hire all the needed tax, legal insurance and investment professionals, all the attorneys and accountants as full-time employees working for that one billionaire and his or her family. So the, the family I know best in New York, I think they've got 45 CPAs in their tax division. And just think about how much that is, just the tax division of the billionaire family. So really it's having people that are focused on you and who are coordinated. And that's where I see entrepreneurs miss the boat is because what entrepreneurs do is over their lifetime, they pick up an accountant, an attorney, an insurance agent, a banker, an investment advisor. And if you picture those like spokes on a wheel, those are their professionals. But when we step in, we evaluate, we usually find out that guess what? They're not always all A players. They're usually not talking to each other and collaborating the way they should to get the best results. But the worst part is the entrepreneur is usually in the middle of that wheel as the hub, managing all those spokes, managing all those relationships. And guess what? Usually the entrepreneur is not an expert at tax, legal, insurance, and investments. So they're not well-versed in those areas, and yet they're running the team. So I like to tell entrepreneurs, like, you probably already have a family office structure. It's just a really crappy one. You don't have A players. They're not talking to each other, and you're running the team. And so what we came up with was, and, and here's where we made the big cost savings, is we evaluate the current team. And if they have great, sometimes we find they have great professionals in all the areas. They're just not being held accountable and they're not being coordinated in their efforts. But we'll keep as many as possible. We'll keep them all. But if there's some, because we usually find one or two that are not up to the quality of what they need, or maybe they've outgrown them. Sometimes the entrepreneur hired their CPA when they're at one level. Now they're at a much bigger level and it's beyond the scope of what that firm can handle. So then we'll replace them because we have professionals all across the country through our network. And then we get the team to collaborate and talk to each other. And we run the team because we've been doing that for many, many years. And then if you follow that analogy, then the entrepreneur becomes like the pedal where they can effortlessly move that big wheel. So that's kind of the family office structure. And then that's how we have 
modeled after that to make it affordable for entrepreneurs? So let me uh, maybe just kind of rephrase that a little bit, or, or at least, you know, what I heard. So, you know, as a, a family office, you know, somebody's like, hey, I want to look at investments or, you know, I have a, a attorney needs because, you know, I'm buying business or I'm doing leases or doing, you know, kind of things. And collectively, like you said, they've assembled them over the years because it was just reactionary. Like I need someone to handle my mortgage, you know, debt, you know, thing. So they hired an attorney to do that. And then they say, Hey, I like you, Jim, come be my attorney and help me represent on each one of those. And then collectively, same thing, find an investment, a CPA and others. And then you've cobbled together this group of people because, that's what you need in general. But like you said, it's like nobody's talking to each other. You don't know. And obviously, uh, and, and, you know, from a billionaire, it's like you're maybe using them part time. CPA may have a lot of other clients. Attorney may have a lot of other clients, so they're not exclusive to you. So then they're not also sharing strategies and, and uh, best practices and thoughts. And then so like you come in and take a look at this and evaluate everybody in their existing network and then probably restructure or toggle or say, wow, sorry, you know, Temi is not making the team. He's, he's on JV, you know, we need to bring some varsity kind of guys in to help you out as far as, so was that a good synopsis of what, what you, you kind of said? Absolutely. And then because we're the center of the wheel, then we know when anything comes up, who needs to be involved? So often you'll have an entrepreneur, let's say an entrepreneur says, Hey, I'm thinking about investing in this real estate deal. Well, there might be, first of all, there's the investment review and making sure that the fees and everything else, and then it's a good project, et cetera. But there's also, how does this impact taxes? Do we need to have a conversation with the CPA? Is there insurance? If it's a deal, if you're doing your own build of some kind, or you're the, the general partner, is there insurance that needs to be talked about? Is there structuring through entity structure or trust that need to be factored in? So having all that in one central place, then pulling in the other professionals to get the appropriate advice will get much better results in the long term because that's coordinating these things. And it, it's as simple, I can just give you a bunch of examples, but often when an entrepreneur builds their business, they don't think about how they're going to exit. But that exit needs tax planning, that needs asset protection plan and that needs estate planning. And even the entity you choose to start with is going to have an impact. You know, if you want to raise money and go public, you're probably going to want to look at being a Delaware C-Corp. If you want to be an employee-owned company like an ESOP, you're probably going to want to be an S-Corp. If you want to, uh, let's say you want to have asset protection qualities, there might be different entity structures that you put into place. Or let's say you're building this to sell off parts and not all at once. Well, then you're probably going to want to have a holding company with LLCs dropping below it so that you can sell your IP and keep the rest of your company or sell the rest of the company and keep your IP. If you have a lot of employees, you want to, might want to break out a management company entity because people sue people and having them held in a different entity and then leasing them to your different companies could make sense. So there's all kinds of situations that you might need the coordinated efforts of all these professionals. And often they're kind of one-offs. I mean, we see this all the time and it could be as simple as someone selling their Florida home and they're moving to California. So the real estate agent knows, but why do they need their asset protection attorney to know? Well, Florida has unlimited homestead protection. So if you had a $5 million home in Florida and you got sued, it was completely protected. 
Now you move to California and most of that home is going to be completely exposed to a lawsuit. So that changes everything. But someone probably doesn't think, oh, I need to call my asset protection attorney because I'm selling my home in Florida and I'm buying a home in, in California. Those types of things don't get thought about. And often entrepreneurs find out later missed opportunities or mistakes they made by not having the team really coordinated. Are you guys enjoying the show so far? Look, two of the most common questions I get asked are, where can I find good deals to invest into? And is it possible to invest alongside of our deals as a passive investor? So my team and I wanted to put together an insider list where you can get first access to investment opportunities, due diligence resources, and best practices for those interested in investing passively into deals like the ones we talk about on the show. Those deals are mostly in the commercial real estate space, but I oftentimes get exclusive access to deals of people like the guests on my show. If those deals pass our criteria, we pass them on to those on the list. To gain access to this insider list, all you have to do is go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. We also host events, dinners, and give away VIP access to events that I'm speaking at or attending. Once again, it's www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. For those that are serious about passive wealth building, we'll see you on the inside. Now, back to the show. That's, that's awesome insights. And, and obviously, I'd love to hear some more of those examples of that, of how you've done that, you know, maybe past mistakes or examples uh, in particular uh, around that area, because I think that's so fascinating because it's like you don't know what you don't know. And just because there's ignorance, uh, it doesn't mean it's not a, a real risk or, you know, just because you're ignorant of a law doesn't mean that you be like, well, I didn't know that was a law. And they're like, yeah, sorry. Well, you're still going to jail. Uh, it, it was just interesting because there's a couple of people that we uh, I've interviewed with. Part of the thing is he did something that was against the law, that the, the way that he structured some of the stuff. And he was like, I had no idea what I was doing was illegal. And so then it was like that. And then even to another point, we had someone that was uh, doing a, a big nine figure exit and how they set up their structure and a dynasty trust and some other things that created, you know, this nine figure exit that they didn't have to then pay taxes on. And, and so you, when you start thinking about this at, at much, much bigger scales and macro views is the rich get richer because they understand the systems and the structure in which it is. And it's not that I have to understand it or even the individual person that is the visionary or like your friend's grandfather. He doesn't know how have to know how to do that. He may be good at doing the one little thing, manufacturing a toilet flapper, you know, and selling that a billion dollars worth of that, but understanding the people that understand how to protect those assets and how to structure them uh, appropriately. So maybe if you could give some examples of that, like how are you doing this on a virtual level or a, a more affordable way than someone that's doing it in-house? And then some examples of maybe some mistakes that you've either corrected or you've helped people avoid in, in that process. Yeah, well, as far as cost, it's not having the full fledged employees. So if you just hired some of those professionals I just mentioned earlier, if you hired some of those, let's say you hire a good attorney, it's probably going to cost you 300 grand a year 
to hire a good attorney. And you start adding up the different professionals around the wheel, it's going to get very expensive very quickly. So really, that's the key is using all of them for a portion of their time. However, what happens is most entrepreneurs have those professionals they're using for a portion of their time. But because there's no coordination, no accountability, they're not getting the best time. I can assure you when an attorney drafts an operating agreement or a phantom stock plan or a revocable living trust or a domestic asset protection trust, and one of our team members goes back to that attorney and says, hey, if you look on page 45, section three, paragraph two, this paragraph doesn't make sense. Can you tell us why that's in here? Or we notice that there's not a provision for X, Y, Z. Usually we see that in these kinds of documents. Any reason why that's not in there? One call that like that to the attorney, and guess who's looking at those documents? It's not just the paralegal. And when we call, guess what? That stuff goes to the top of the pile because now that attorney knows he's being accountable for what's in that document. And most people, most entrepreneurs don't know anything that are in those documents that they're reading. So it's that second set of eyes to make sure that they're being protected. One area we see a lot of neglect is in tax planning. Most CPAs that we see, and even very good ones, are tax historians. What that means, they take all the information, they put it in the right forms to file your taxes, and then they tell you what you owe in estimated taxes. And that's fine, but that's not very forward-looking. That's looking in the rearview mirror. So what we do with our clients, and really what you want to do if you're listening on this call, is make sure you've got someone who knows taxes that's looking over the P&Ls, what's happening this year so far, and what within the tax code could you be taking advantage of that you're not taking advantage of? Because remember, the tax code is very complex. There's all kinds of opportunities that are legal. They're what we call bright line transactions. Uh, you also want to be careful that if people are pitching you tax savings ideas where they're benefiting, either they're getting a percentage of the upside or they're somehow making money off of that transaction, you want to be very carefully because they have an incentive to get you to do it. And as you said earlier, if it's illegal, you're going to be paying the piper. It's not, you know, they, those people might get chased too, but you're going to get in big trouble because your tax return is your responsibility when you sign it. At any rate, so tax planning is a big, a big deal. And I can give you many, many examples. I'll just give you one because this is something we see a lot. The, in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, they passed 199 Cap A, which is the Qualified Business Income 20% deduction through, for flow-through entities. So they cut the corporate tax rate down to 21%. And to make it fair, they created this 20% deduction for qualified business income for flow through entities, S-Corps, LLCs, partnerships. Often we see CPAs, see CPAs that aren't really looking at the way they can take advantage of 199 Cap A. So one problem with the 199 Cap A is if you are a, what they call a specified service and trade business, then you can't get it once you exceed a certain amount of income. That means a company that relies on your likeness. So a professional athlete, a attorney, a financial advisor, a coach, those types of things that rely on their own likeness and their own abilities. Once they make too much money, they don't qualify. So one example that I can think of is we had a very successful entrepreneur who runs a coaching business. And the CPA said, you're an SSTB, you make too much money, you don't get the 199 cap A deduction. We looked at it though, and we knew his business better than the CPA did. We said, well, wait a second. You do coaching, but you also have coaches that use your platform to do coaching. That's not an SSTV. So what if we split the company into two separate companies? 
Now, the one where you're doing direct coaching, you still don't qualify, but the, the one where you have coaches in your platform, you do qualify. Now, I can't remember. I think that was a, something like a $200,000 tax savings on that one strategy. Uh, but that's the kind of thing that, that we went to the CPA and the CPA said, yeah, I guess, yeah, we could do that. We could do that. Why didn't they think of it before? Because they're not looking proactively and looking forward. Another thing on 199 Cap A is once you exceed the income limits for the deduction, there's a W-2 wage test and a, uh, a property test that are kind of combined. And for most entrepreneurs, the W-2 wage test applies most rather than property in the business. And that's a 50% of W-2 wages that limit how much you can get on that 199 Cap A deduction. So one thing that you can do if you're a owner employee S Corp, you can increase your W-2 wages through a bonus to increase the amount of deduction you get. So we look at that every December with clients that are S Corps that to see if bonusing themselves some more W-2 wages can actually reduce their taxes in a dramatic way. And the old school way and still applies is you have an S Corp so that you can keep your salary low still has to be reasonable, but keep it low. So you're saving in some of the payroll taxes. But with this, because the 20% deduction is much higher than what you save in the payroll taxes, sometimes it's better pushing the higher limit of reasonable compensation to get that 199 cap A deduction. So that's, that's just a couple examples on the tax planning. There's a myriad of things that we see that get missed on tax planning. The CPA is really important, but I think having a team that understands your situation that can work with the CPA to make the CPA even better is really helpful, you know, to make a good CPA great and an average CPA good. Another example I'll give you, just some little quirky ones. So this was a, a client who we had noticed on the, and he lived in California, we noticed on the auto insurance that on one statement, a Tesla was on and one of the cars that were covered. And on another statement, the Tesla wasn't there. So we called up the client. We said, hey, uh, what's going on with the Tesla? And he goes, oh, uh, yeah, I gave it to my dad. We said, well, you, you gave it to your dad. What do you mean? I just gave it to him. I said, dad, I don't need this. I got plenty of cars. Here, have the Tesla. So well, when you gave it to him, do you mean you changed the title? Like you changed the title to your dad's name? He goes, oh, do I need to do that? I said, well, wait a second. Does your dad have coverage on that Tesla? Because I have no idea. I go, because you have no coverage. And if it's in your name, if your dad gets in a car accident, someone gets killed in California, you know, the kind of lawsuit you're going to get with no insurance Goes, I'll call you right back. Called us back. And he said, my dad has no insurance because his dad was the same thing. Like, I don't know. You gave me the car. I didn't. I figured you had insurance. So that's like a little thing that you would think, why wouldn't. And this this guy had some pretty really good professionals. He had a CFO. I mean, it was a big company. Why wouldn't that get caught? Because no one knows the whole picture and no one's asking the questions and no one's coordinating the professionals. So that was luckily a story that ended well, but it could have ended very badly. And it probably would have gone on. It could have been years that they went on with no coverage on the Tesla because no one, is gonna, well, no one was going to catch that, you know, except our team. So that's where you want to have someone who knows this stuff, who's looking at the stuff and who's monitoring everything in your total picture. That is incredibly insightful. I mean, as far as the seeing it, because it's, it's just so many of those little things like that is, you know, perfect example that Tesla, you know, just given, given a, a car donating, you know, giving somebody else, Hey, here you go. Have that. I don't, I don't need it. But, but then obviously someone from the insurance, like, Oh, you don't have the car. Let's not have insurance on anymore. Look, we're saving you money. 
And that totally makes sense. But it's it's just like that, the whole, whole cohesive uh, elements of that. Yeah. And, you know, and just one other thing, and this is how this stuff happens. The client has a personal assistant that handles most of his stuff for him. So the reason why the insurance got dropped is because one day she sees him at work without the Tesla that he always drove to work. And she was like, where's your Tesla? And he goes, oh, I gave it away. Okay. So then she calls the insurance agent and says he gave the car away. He doesn't have it anymore. Okay. He takes it off. Right. Like no one thought to go, well, where did you, who'd you give it to? And his personal assistant's not going to say, did you change title? Did you give it to a charity? Do we need to call the CPA? Is that a charitable deduction? Right. She just said, oh, my job is to make sure his insurance is right. I don't want him paying for insurance he doesn't need. And that's where the whole thing fell apart. A personal assistant being proactive the way he wants her to be made a phone call. And then the whole thing fell apart. Nobody knew until we we caught it. That's interesting. So how, how does that, you know, uh, somebody signs up for, for your business, you know, it, how, how are you tracking that? How are you going through and monitoring that? What is your, your process that you're doing? Is this a, you know, weekly deep dive? Is it an annual deep dive? Like, what is it that, that you're looking through and reviewing all these documentations? And then I also think that like, that's got to be challenging on your side because, you know, let's say that a lot of visionary entrepreneurs and, and business owners are not really good at the nitty gritty details of stuff. And so like actually extracting some of the information that you need from them is probably it's a, a, another problem as well. Yeah, we start, we do something called a family office assessment. This is where we're going to review all their P&Ls, their tax returns or legal documents or insurance policies their investment statements, everything that touches their financial world. And to your point, we always tell them, if you don't have these readily available, introduce us to the professionals that do, because they will have an accountant that has their past tax returns. They will have an insurance agent that has their auto and home. They will have a corporate insurance of some kind. Although I've met some pretty big companies that didn't have any corporate insurance. I'm like, you don't have general liability. You don't have employee liability uh, insurance coverage. You don't have cybersecurity coverage. No, we don't have anything, but that's rare. Usually they have a commercial policy of some kind. So there are people who know those things. They have an attorney that will have those documents. So we say, just introduce us to, to the professionals so we can bird dog those things. And then it takes truthfully about 12 months to get the team up and running and get all these things because we'll find things that are missed, gaps in the plan, missed opportunities. And it takes a while to get that and to get the team to gel together. Once it gels together, it's easier than it is for the first 12 months to get it set up. And then we have uh, regular calls with the with the entrepreneur, usually our advisors would like to do standing calls, whether that's monthly or every six weeks or sometimes every two weeks, depending on how many projects are going on. And then also follow up with the different professionals. So we're going to have a conversation with the insurance agent at least once a year, reviewing coverages, asking questions and shopping coverages. Because a lot of times we want to make sure that our entrepreneurs are getting the best deal. So we'll try to negotiate legal fees. We'll talk about, you know, we always... I train our group, you always ask for a better deal, whether it's time efficiencies to get moved up, whether it's saving money. And then we try to do some of the work. So for example, we'll tell, we'll, once we get the scope of what an attorney needs to do, we'll say, okay, that bottom third, if we do that for you and tee it up for you, I would assume the cost is going to be a third lower for our client. And surprisingly, the attorney's like, okay, yeah, if you're going to do those things and get it organized, then yeah, I'll, I'll knock that off for our, for our clients. So it's a matter of being involved and actually looking at stuff and asking questions. We're not the attorneys, we're not the CPAs, we're not the insurance agents. 
but we know a lot about those areas so that we can, and, and that's one of the things where our advisors, I mean, the hardest part of our, our business is finding the advisors to do the work. We just can't hire someone from a brokerage firm or an insurance company or a bank because they have to one day be able to talk to an insurance agent about what exclusions are on the umbrella liability policy that we don't like and adding EPLI to the corporate insurance. Next day, they have to be able to talk to an asset protection attorney about how the spousal lifetime access trust, the SLAT, is being designed and being created. And then the next day, they have to talk to a CPA and go over the 1120 and talk about the 199 cap A or R&D tax credit or what deductions apply or bonus depreciation, which by the way, this year you still get 100% bonus depreciation. So in the real estate game, cost segregations are, are really great right now, especially this year. Uh, so anyway, you have to know all those things and then you have to be able to recognize opportunities with the entrepreneur. So as I was just talking about cost segregation, sometimes we'll say, well, you have a lot of real estate, but you're running a business. So you're not gonna be able to become a qualified real estate professional, but your spouse has a lot of time and isn't working in the business. Maybe we create, see if we can get your spouse qualified uh, as a qualified real estate professional, which as you know, it's one of the best benefits in the tax code because then you can take passive losses like depreciation and offset active income. And that's a really magical thing. So that's really the challenge that we have is finding those advisors and then training those advisors to be able to do that kind of deep work in all areas. And you know, when I started almost 30 years ago, what they used to say is kind of interesting because sometimes I have entrepreneurs say, isn't it kind of like... And I say, no, it's not kind of like, because when I started, they say, they used to tell us like, say you're the quarterback, you're the quarterback of the team, the attorney, the CPA. But what that really meant was introduce them to an attorney, introduce them to a CPA, introduce them to an insurance agent. It didn't mean dig through the tax return and find what they're missing or find any mistakes that you think the CPA is making, go back to the CPA. It didn't say read through all the legal documents and make sure that the asset protection trust is set up appropriately you know, for what they're trying to accomplish. There's never any of that stuff. And in fact, they said, we don't want to see a tax return on your desk ever because we don't want you to be, you know, delving in those areas that aren't our expertise. So that's our challenge is, is finding the advisors. And I'm, I'm really confident and happy with our team right now and excited about the work that we're doing. Yeah, I love I love that you said that uh, as you're kind of talking, I was thinking about that in, you know, describing it as deep work. You know, that, that is, it is a great way of, of defining that because, uh, exactly what you said, it is, is just so next level that, I mean, I, I have lots of attorneys that I work with and that's, I was like, you know, I was like, I, I'm pretty sure I've put, you know, a lot of our attorneys, grandkids through school, uh, with the amount of legal fees that I've paid over the years, you know, so, but they're not deep diving into necessarily tax returns and, and everything's a little bit siloed, you know, as far as and we're even finding this from, you know, I'm going through, we have an opportunity zone fund that people invested in some other things like that. And then just like, even though Novogratic as a CPA firm set up all these different entities, like even the organizational documents don't talk to each other appropriately. And so it's like just sitting down and it's like, you know, for people that not don't see the video, I pulled all my hair out trying to you know, review these legal contracts. And it's just like, I don't have hair people that are listening to this as an audio. Um, so, but it, it totally makes sense to me what you're doing and how valuable that is as, as a service. And one of the most fascinating things that I, you know, at least picked up on when we, we met was the way that you're structuring this 
from your fees and how you're charging for this. Because I think that just kind of went to Mimi's point of you didn't like the system. So you just need to start it your own thing. So maybe talk to me, like, how are you structuring that and why that is uh, to me, like, I believe also next level fiduciary to, to the clients that you're working for. Yeah, Jake, it's the question that Mimi and I have asked ourselves over and over throughout the years is we're entrepreneurs. How would we create it for ourselves? Not, not how would we create it to make a bunch of money? How would you make it to make, make a great business? And part of the reason why was when I was with the brokerage firm world, I realized that the question they were always asking is, how can we get more lifetime value out of the customer or the client? How can we sell more stuff? How can we make more revenue? Which is the question that you want publicly traded companies to ask for their shareholders. But we said, let's just flip that around. Let's just say, how would we build it for ourselves as entrepreneurs? Let's just start there. And so we started saying to ourselves, okay, well, we wouldn't sell any products. We wouldn't take any commissions, but here's a distinction. We will represent our clients if they need to buy any products. So if someone needs to buy life insurance in the entrepreneur space, a lot of people are pitched whole life insurance and other types of life insurance. And sometimes it makes sense. Sometimes it doesn't. But I always tell any entrepreneur what the billionaires do. They buy retail products too, but they never buy a retail product unless they have representation on their side who understands those products as well as the people selling them but don't get rewarded or benefit in any way if the billionaire buys the retail product. And the same thing for you. Don't buy life insurance or anything else from someone selling it unless you have someone on your side who's not getting rewarded if you buy the product, who can represent you, negotiate commissions, make sure that they're structuring those, those policies correctly. But back to what I was saying, taking no commissions, selling no products, uh, taking no referral fees, kickbacks, revenue sharing. So often you'll have fiduciaries who will, let's say, bring a private equity opportunity to a investor, but they're getting spiffed. They're getting a referral fee or they're getting a finder's fee. And so we said, none of that. We wouldn't want anyone getting paid a single penny that we don't know about. We wanna know exactly how they're getting paid and their incentives. So that made it easy to cut that part out. And then also uh, the last piece is we looked at the whole assets under management model. And most fiduciary firms are trying to get you to invest their money with them and that's how they're making their money. So we said, okay, Let's just not be an asset gathering firm. Let's just get paid a monthly fixed fee just to represent them and do all the work. And so that's kind of the model we came up with is, is as pure as it is, we're getting paid directly by the entrepreneur. And, and that's how we structured. And then one thing that we're actually reconsidering now is we've always been month to month because we said, hey, we want to be able to leave anytime we want as entrepreneurs. We don't want to be tied into a long-term contract. But you know what? The customer is always right or the client's always right. We've had some clients say, hey, Jim, this is a lifelong thing for me. I'd be willing to sign a three-year agreement with you or a two-year agreement for you. If the fee was lower, I would do a longer commitment. I thought that's interesting. Maybe we'll think about that. But it's always been month to month. We're willing to take the risk. And if, if a client wants to leave us, we don't want them to be stuck. And if we want to get rid of a client because they're a pain in the neck, I'll say, uh, we want to be able to do that as well. So anyway, we created this whole idea in our head. And I went to two people I really respect. One was built the first billion dollar plus assets under management RIA firm, registered investment advisory firm in the country and sold it for a bunch of money in the 90s. And then another guy who has a lot of experience in, in financial services. And I went to both of them and they both said, Jim, it's a terrible idea. I said, why? And I'll tell you the two reasons I heard. One, you're giving up so much revenue. There's so many ways you can make money off these clients that you're giving up on. So that's number one, you're giving up too much revenue. 
And number two, the clients aren't sticky. So what do you mean by that? Well, it's too easy for them to leave. I said, well, give me an example. They say, okay, take one of the big banks. I won't name a big bank, but pick any of the big banks. A lot of people hate banking at that big bank, but they won't leave. Why? Because the big bank has their line of credit, has their mortgage, has their investment portfolio, has their business checking, has their personal checking. You know, man, to, to change all of that is so much work. So they stay with the big bank. And I thought about that for a second. And I thought, okay, let me take those two one at a time. The first thing is giving up revenue. I said, look, I was a school teacher making $25,000 a year. I'm making so much more money than I ever dreamed possible. I'd rather just do what's in my heart. And so what if we don't make more money? We're making plenty of money right now. So that was the first one that we shot down. It'd be more fun just to do something different because we think it's right. And then the second one, I, here was the, and this is probably not really the way a business owner should think, but I thought, okay, if I found out my wife Mimi was with me just because it's too complicated to divorce me. And by the way, it's way more complicated for us to get a divorce today than it was 30 years ago when we were broke. Uh, but I thought, would that sit well with me? Would I want her to stay married with me just because it's too hard to divorce me? No, every day I want her to want to be married with. So then I thought, same thing. As simple as that sounds, I want our clients to be with us because they want to be with us, not because it's too hard to leave us. And I want to feel the same way about our clients because it's really, uh, we, we always feel like this is a, a relationship. We're working together on, on this with the clients. We're not on a different side of the table. We're on the same side of the table. And so we said, let's just do it. Who cares? So what if we don't make money? And, and so what if, if clients want to leave us and they leave us? And then we found out that a lot of entrepreneurs, they want the same thing we wanted, you know, someone to represent them. You know, and really when I tell entrepreneurs, when I say, look, it doesn't have to be us, but when you're looking for someone to help build and run one of these for you, you really want someone who has three distinct qualities. You want a firm that specializes in working, in working with entrepreneurs, because often most firms I know in wealth planning, they're generalists that work with anybody who has a lot of money. And there's a big difference in your situation as an entrepreneur, both your problems and your opportunities. Then if you're a W-2 wage earner or whether you inherited your money or you got your money through a divorce or something like that. Uh, the second thing is you want a firm with experience. Like I said earlier, we made a lot of mistakes when we were first building these things. And with experience and making mistakes, you get wisdom and you get better. Uh, so make sure that you've got a firm that's been doing these for a long time. And then the third piece, and I just mentioned that as a fiduciary standard of care, which is a fancy legal term, that means they have to put your interests ahead of their own but I'd also take it a step further because a lot of fiduciary firms can get paid in ways that create conflicts of interest. They just have to disclose it in a big document that nobody reads. So in a perfect world, and of course, I, I can be accused of being idealistic. I've been accused of that before, but in a perfect world, I'd want you to work with someone who gets paid directly by you, is not trying to sell you products, isn't trying to get you to move your money over there instead of putting it in real estate or instead of managing it yourself at Robinhood or Vanguard or Schwab or Betterment. Um, you know, someone who's not going to tell you whether you should pay off your building or not because they want to get the money, you know, under their coffers, who are not bringing you deals and getting spiffed in the side and getting paid for those introductions. In a perfect world, that's what I would wish for you is that you have someone that only represents you and only gets paid directly by you and is not running into these more common conflicts of interest that create issues when it comes to advice. Yeah, I think that is, is, is so valuable as far as each one of those things, those three qualities you said, entrepreneur focused, because, you know, like you said, an entrepreneur looks at the world differently. How they structure things is going to be a lot different. And, and obviously experience of 
going and, and making mistakes and, and getting a, a breath of knowledge um, instead of reinventing uh, the, the wheel. And that's an easy one to find out, by the way, if you're wondering if they specialize, just go to their website. You know, if I, if I go to an orthopedic surgeon's website and he's a, a hand or she's a hand specialist, it's all over the website, right? It doesn't say we do hand surgery and we mend broken bones and we do brain surgery and we deliver babies. It doesn't say that. But a lot of times I go to these, these wealth planning type websites and they just list out all these people they work with, you know, from, you know, high income professionals, uh, um, retirees, business owners, people who go through a divorce, sudden wealth through inheritance. I'm thinking every one of those has a different set of problems and opportunities. And I think they're just trying to do a broad brush to get more clients to come to them. But you need to be aware if you're an entrepreneur, if they specialize, they're going to say it all over their website. Yeah, that's and I've used that analogy in the past as far as like, you know, an, an ophthalmologist doesn't work on their own foot they go to a podiatrist like they go to someone that specializes in that individual thing and which is which is also very cliche because i think some of the uh very successful doctors uh have the mental horsepower to handle a lot of these things and so they just try to do them themselves like you know they know in the in in the medical field no, I don't do that. I send it to the lab or I don't do that. I send it to the orthopedic surgeon. I send it to those. But then what happens when it comes into their investing or their wealth or those other things? They're like, I'm super smart. I'll just do it myself. And so it's like you're working 80 hours a week, you know, uh, as a pediatrician taking care of these little kids. Uh, what time do you have to, to, to man you're not working eight hours a week? you know, managing people's wealth. And so, and that's where I, I think there's a big, big chasm that people sometimes need to get over before they understand uh, what it is that you're doing. Um, I, I know that I could probably talk to you for, for hours and hours just because I find this incredibly fascinating. And some of these examples, like I have pages of notes already and things that I'm probably going to follow up with you on. I wanted to ask you a few questions as we're kind of wrapping up and, and I didn't prep you for this at all. Um, uh, so I would say one of the questions that I, I ask is um, what is one of the best investments that you have done that has given you the best return on investment for freedom? Well, best investment I ever made was in, in starting our business, without a doubt. And it's one of those things where I was just listening to a, a podcast this morning. I wish I remembered the person's name, but it was a, a doctor who has some best-selling books on happiness. And he said, there's three things for happiness. The first is let me see, contentment, control, and oh, alignment. So alignment, contentment, and control. So alignment, are you aligned with who you should be, who you want to be? A lot of people, when they, they're unhappy because they're not living their own life, they're not living their best life, they're living someone else's life or based on what other people told them. Uh, contentment, so being grateful and pausing to appreciate what you have, and then control. Having control over your decisions in your life is a huge part of happiness. And people who, like my relatives on my dad's side, who worked in the steel mill, they didn't have much control over their life. And they, you know, went to the steel mill at whatever hours they were supposed to be there and worked a hard, hard day and didn't get paid much and probably weren't very happy. So that's one thing about as far as happiness and freedom. I work a lot because I love to work a lot, but I have total control over what I do. And that gives me a lot of happiness and freedom. 
So I, I don't know if that's the right answer to your question, but I would say my business for sure is the best investment I've ever made. That's awesome. No, I, I think that that's fantastic. And, and, you know, hit on a lot of great, great points there. You know, now go to the next question as far as, and I think it, it was interesting that you mentioned and brought up the podcast is like, but what is like the book that you have gifted most or podcasts that you've shared out the most with other people because it has created such a big impact on your life? Probably the single book I've referred out the most is The Road Less Stupid by my friend Keith Cunningham. So many good things in that book and the questions at the end of every chapter to ask yourself and blocking off thinking time. If I was going to say one book for a, an entrepreneur business owner, I'd say The Road Less Stupid is one of the greatest. Uh, I've heard that he is he, the, the original rich dad. He is. Yeah. Yeah. He talks about that at, at, uh, at his live events. If you go there, sometimes he'll talk about that. And I also got to share a speech, a, a page, uh, share a stage. I got to share a stage with Robert Kiyosaki a few months ago in Vegas and got to hang out with him a little bit backstage. And that was fascinating as I think you mentioned in one of your podcasts that that book really was a big game changer for you. Yeah, that's um, so it's just one of those things that it's the first time, you know, and, and, you know, I'm sure you've read it. If you haven't read it, you probably understand it. It's like just buying assets instead of liabilities and not only just buying assets instead of liabilities. And then you take in the next level, uh, level of buying cash flowing assets instead of liabilities. And so like the the education or the, what they're doing is very basic rudimentary and kind of foundational, but it was like a light bulb moment for me, you know, being in the army, reading this thing. And I was just like, that's what I want to do. I didn't like, like your wife. I didn't know how to do that. There's many, many things in my life that I didn't know how to do, but that didn't stop me from doing it. I actually, when I was starting my private equity uh, company, uh, I said, Hey, I'm starting a private equity company. And she's like, how are you going to do that? And I was like, I don't know. I'm a couple of chapters into the book. Like as long as I read one more chapter than, uh, than I need to do from the action item, then I think I'll be able to do that. I made lots of mistakes and things I would have maybe restructured, but I, I think you don't have to see the, the end of the road. You don't have to see where it, it you know, the, the totality of what you're going to do, you can kind of map out. And I love what Cameron Harold also put together in the vivid vision of the things is stop focusing on how you get there. Just focus on what and where you want to go in general. And then what happens, you'll find things that start coming in alignment. You find amazing people like Jim, you find people that, you know, and especially your network, it is, is unbelievable about the people that are just crushing it on so many different levels. You know, Keith Cunningham, Roland Frazier, you know, Cameron Harold. these are people that I have found to be tremendously valuable in their information that they've given out to others. And obviously they're clients of yours and people that you're getting to help or, or break bread with. Yeah. Not all those that you mentioned are clients just to be transparent, but uh, yeah, I mean, all those folks you mentioned are good friends. Some are clients and another couple of books I thought of was you were talking about, uh, you know, how I'm not sure how, and that kind of stuff, who, not how by my friends, Ben Hardy and Dan Sullivan, they also wrote gap in the gain is great. And then believe it or not, my book is pretty good really focused on entrepreneurs. And a lot of what I talked about today is in there. And there hasn't been a big tax law change, even though we thought build back better was going to happen, but hasn't. 
So the, everything in there is still good. I had opportunity zones in there. It was very new. So of course, some of those, the benefits with that have, have gone away, but you still get the benefits of the opportunity zones if you hold for 10 years. I mean, that's the biggest benefit, as you know. But anyway, my book's a good one too, uh, Beyond a Million that that I, I'm pretty proud of. It took me a couple of years to to write and it's been out for probably four or five years, but still a ton of good stuff in there. So that leads me to like, so they need to go buy your book. They need to go find you somewhere. Where can they find you? Where can people, you know, connect up with you, either review the content that you're doing, or maybe, Hey, they said, Oh my gosh, I have to have this virtual office. I'm willing to wait seven, eight, nine months or whatever it is on your backlog, but I need Jim to handle what I am doing because it just really scratches. Where can they find you? Mention that book again, Beyond a Million is what I, I have there. But uh, And then what is an ask of, of someone that, uh, of the audience? You know, what is, bring a deal, bring a client. You know, I know you're not getting paid referral fees or commissions or anything like that, but who is it and what are you looking for out in the world that they maybe can help you out? Well, thank you, Jake. That's very kind. Yeah. So when it comes to, I'll just start with the last question, helping me, uh, I would say the first thing is help yourself because my mission is to make entrepreneurs or make sure they're making good decisions and building their wealth and sustaining their wealth. Lots of entrepreneurs make a lot of money, but they don't keep it. And it's a different skill set to keep your money than make your money. So I would implore you to please spend some time and think about your infrastructure, the people in the process, how you're making decisions uh, and, and do that. Uh, that would be great. How can people find me? Well, you can go to our website, which is dowealth.com. That's D-E-W-W-E-A-L-T-H.com. So there's two W's in the middle. That also is if you're interested in, in actually connecting with me or my team, if you if you fit, which for us as owner, founder, entrepreneurs who are running businesses that are doing a million or more EBITDA a year. And you can just think of that as profit or, or take-home income. That's kind of the starting point with us. And then as far as I'm on... LinkedIn is a good place to find me. Also, I'm on Instagram. Those would probably be the two best in the social media world to try to connect up with me. And then the book is Beyond a Million, The Entrepreneur's Playbook for Expanding Wealth, Freedom, and Time. And like I said, I'm very proud of that book. There's a lot of really good stuff in there. And I joke with Mimi because I get I get such little. I make so little because I'm not selling the kind of books. You know, I'm not Jim Quick or something that's selling so many books and I'm making money off of the books. So I get these little increments, like some months are bigger than others. And I like to forward those to my wife and say, pretty hot that you're with a professional author. Right. And it's like $42 I made that month or something. So it's really not a moneymaker for us. I did it to put really good ideas out in the world. And, and my friend Tucker Max told me, you know, put your best ideas in there because, uh, don't hold anything back. And I did, there's a lot of really great information in that book. Um, again, not pitching it to make money, but really it's, it's a lot of valuable insight in there. If you're an entrepreneur, I love that. I am in the same boat as you Tucker convinced me to do a book as well. I did that. And, you know, it, it might sell, you know, 10 books in a week and then six the next week. And, you know, part of those other things exactly like that. And you're like, woohoo, 72 bucks. We, with the inflation now, we can get a quarter tank of gas. Like, yes, you know? And so, uh, yeah, I, my wife was not, uh, you know, she's like, why would you write a book? Like, and so to your point, I, I think it, it solidified so many other things you can randomize in your thought process and bring it down into something. So go check out his book, 
beyond a million, dowealth.com. Find him on Instagram, blow him up, send him messages there. You know, maybe tag him as as your tax return drops hundreds of thousands of dollars because of the the uh, practical advice. Again, this is not tax advice. Consult your tax attorneys, your CPAs, just because Jim said it on this show or I agreed with it doesn't mean it is right for you. Uh, So consult your professionals. Again, this is Passive Wealth Principles and see you guys next episode. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. If the episode made you think of someone, go ahead and take a screenshot and share this episode with them. You can tag us or find us as a podcast at Catch Knives or me personally at Jake.RealEstate. For those investors that are listening to this and want to be able to take advantage of distressed investing opportunities, a perfect place to start is my best-selling book, which also happens to be called Catching Knives. It's a full breakdown and guide on how I and many of my partners take advantage of opportunities in distressed commercial real estate. Go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and grab the book there as there's a few book bonuses that I know you'll love. Once again, www.catchkniveswithans.com. Take care and I'll see you in the next episode.